0: Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Today, we're joined by Joel Tash, founder and CEO of CleanHub, a business formed during the pandemic, committed to stopping plastic waste from entering into our environment. They've created a unique business model, where responsible businesses and consumer brands can offset their plastic footprint and finance the collection of non-recyclable plastic from the regions of the world that lack proper effective waste management solutions. In their first two years, CleanHub have financed the collection of over 1 million kilograms of plastic waste that otherwise would have ended up in our oceans, our rivers, or just been burnt out in the street. Joelle shines the light on the depth of the issue when it comes to plastic waste and advises what we can do as consumers and as businesses to take responsibility. Hey Joelle, thanks for chatting with us today. Great,
1: pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Nice. Um, so I always like to start chatting to the guests a little bit about their, their backgrounds. Uh, I was doing my research, when of your LinkedIn looks like it's been cleansed a little bit. <laughs> um, for, for any listeners um, not familiar with yourself, would you be able just to give a bit of background in terms of you know, education, upbringing, anything that may be relevant to like, the future conversation?
1: Yeah, I did, I did clean my, my LinkedIn because I think a lot of the stuff that is on there is not really relevant for for important decisions. Um I don't think it matters much where somebody went to university or academia looked like, um where they worked before. I mean obviously it helps for certain positions, but that's for me the main reason why I took it off. Um it's yeah, uh, I don't know. LinkedIn is I, I don't like the narcissism of social media. I think that that summarizes it uh, pretty quickly. But um personally grew up at lake constance which is the biggest lake in germany and that is quite important for the overall journey of cleanup because growing up at, at a lake meant that i spent most of my summers in or on the lake um i always loved sailing i did it competitively for for quite a while loved water sports and the winters were spent in the mountains um because it's also right next to the to the swiss and the austrian alps um so i always loved the outdoors and i think there's a core driver of why i went into into this entire plastic space at some point started surfing um had the opportunity to uh, spend some time actually in hawaii and tel aviv um, for my semesters abroad where i was also able to follow that passion so everything was always a bit structured around that then did my or started my masters in dresden which is in eastern germany um, in international business and while I was interning for that master, or we had to do an internship for that master, um, I started at a software company called Avrius in Switzerland, which was a startup that I joined in seed stage. And then as it sometimes happens in startups, I had a very quick career. Um, got my own team and got a lot of responsibility, decided to put my master on a hold and it's still on hold. Or actually I, I would not be able to um yeah enroll again but i never finished my master's and yeah worked in the startup for three years and then at some point decided that i learned enough about company building and um it's time to start my own company
0: nice and that was going to be my question was like what were some of the key learns like lessons learned that you took from that startup journey into cleanup
1: yeah um I have a very good relation to the to the CEO there. He's also one of our angel investors and by now one of my best friends. And um, he's a very commercial person. And he yeah, basically from the day that I decided that I want to start my own company, he was preaching what I think comes out of the Y Combinator corner. And that is build product and talk to users and start selling because revenue is the best um, validation point for your startup. I think there was a one core lesson um and other things were more also i think how how not to do things um and one of the key learnings that i also openly discussed with him is or that he was also pushing me for was hire a senior team relatively early because um as a startup, obviously, you're going to make mistakes at the pace that you're moving, but the more experienced the people are, you bring on board, the less mistakes you're going to do, the less um, <laughs> the money you're going to blow on on mistakes. And that also put us into a position where we are um, pretty cash efficient, um, especially if we compare our burn to, to ARR, um, we're below two, which I think in this current climate is something very, very good to have. Um and yeah, be careful with your cash spend. That's probably the, the main
0: essence. And then moving on to talk just more broadly about the the problem space that you work in. So kind of plastic and plastic waste. Now I'd hope that the listeners of this show will have a pretty good idea of why that's a major problem. But just speaking really broadly, um, what do you see as the major problems with plastic and plastic waste in the world right now?
1: I think there's two directions of how you can um go about this problem. And it's often described as upstream solutions and downstream solutions. Upstream solutions are better design, um, new packaging material, which is obviously something that is absolutely required. The other thing is downstream solutions, which is then going more into how to how to manage waste. And we are more in the space of how to manage waste because one does not go without the other. You know, if you produce the best packaging material, but we do not have collection systems for the, the packaging that we produce, even if it's compostable, right? The the waste still needs to be collected, to be brought to a facility where it can be processed, where it can be turned then into compost or ideally be recycled or um, responsibly disposed of, depending on how the material is um, yeah, um, composed. And um, we are a, a downstream solution because one thing that a lot of people, I think, don't know At least in the echo chamber, let's say UK, Germany, US, um, or the more developed countries. I'm not a big fan of splitting the world in developed and uh, developing. But um, to make it easy, Um, you know, we have waste services that come every single week or every second week. Like they wake me up on Mondays at six in Berlin um, which by now I'm very grateful for you know they they come get the waste and it's not your problem anymore basically but globally there's two billion people in the world that do not have that service where nobody comes on a Monday or any other weekday to pick up your waste and you know people still consume people still get packaging waste into their households, but nobody comes to pick it up and this is the core reason for plastic pollution because you know if nobody comes to pick it up they're going to dump it on the street. They're going to dump it in the next river because you still want the plastic to be gone or they're going to burn it under the open sky. And open burning is responsible. There's new studies um, for 2 to 10% of global greenhouse gas emission equivalents, um, which is massive, right? Even if it would just be 2%, but 10% would be crazy. And you can't read about that in any of the, the climate change books. Um, nobody talks about that issue. And the thing that is... Um, Obviously, a problem in itself that we don't know if it's 2 or 10%, but, you know, society does not really care about waste management that much, and that even shows in science. There's very little um, academia going into that, or also
0: very little research going into that space. Yeah. And like you said, I, th- I think it's easy to remain quite ignorant if you are in a privileged country or situation where you have these waste management systems in place. It's almost foreign that you think that actually other countries don't have that. It's almost like you think it's a given when it's, it's really not. So you grew up with this affinity to the water, um, always been around water throughout your entire life. And then you had your kind of like um, schooling in startup, startup school at, at Avios um, where I learned some key lessons. What was the moment uh, and some of the things that contributed to design like now is the moment to go and launch a, a solution in this space? Um, and and start clean up
1: i think that there was not that one single moment um where it was about that um there are many moments during my career as like i did an internship at lufthansa um, major airline right corporate and it was or after that i knew that i'm not gonna go work in corporate world um then i joined a startup because I wanted to learn how to build a company. So that wish to build a company was already there when I when I joined that startup. And then um the I think the after two years I for the first time really talked to Andreas, the CEO, and said like, hey, I think I want to start something. And then I went on vacation and this is where I went with Florin, um one of the co-founders. And we actually went to Iran and saw again firsthand what what kind of privileged lives we lead. Um, in Switzerland, and that there must be a way of how we can use the yeah this privilege to build something more meaningful than a standard SaaS product. Um, so at that moment, we decided that we wanted to do something together and that we wanted to do something that's doing hopefully more good than harm. And um, then it took another five, six months until we decided on the industry. And for me, it was pretty obvious that I wanted to do something on plastic pollution because I always hated plastic pollution. Like no matter where you go, you were affected by it. But I didn't really know if if there would be a scalable solution for it. And then um, I came across the concept of, of the circular economy and was extremely intrigued by it. And. Yeah, there was then the moment when I said, Okay, I want to double down on that specific topic. It's plastic pollution and I want to see if there's a scalable and impactful solution for that topic. And then it took another half year until I quit my job. Um, but I took a lot of that time already to to start research and then I took another year um to, to really develop the idea because I wanted to get a very deep understanding of the problem space. So I took a year off, did a lot of research, went to I don't know, 15, 20 conferences, visited a lot of waste management entrepreneurs in in Germany, but also in India, in Sri Lanka. We we went on the ground to really understand what's the core problem of it and what are the economics of the market and what can we do to be part of the solution. Um, So there was not that one eureka moment, I would say, where you swim and suddenly you have a... plastic Mm -hmm. facing, it's like oh my god this is a problem Uh, it was more progression of of different events i would say
0: makes sense and for the listeners can you explain exactly what clean hub does and and how you do it essentially
1: what i mentioned earlier right it's like two billion people in the world do not have access to waste management system and that is mostly because waste management costs money it is a service it is not a production process where at the end of the process you have a nice thing that you can sell and that's going to pay for your entire operations waste management really is a service and in many places there's not enough money around to pay for that service right? and we believe if brands are in a position that they can sell to people um, they are also in a position that they can take responsibility for the waste that they produce or this is how it should be um, so what we do is we partner with waste management companies in South and Southeast Asia and um give them contracts, let's say it's like, please collect waste from households and sort out the recyclables from the non-recyclables, do proper waste management, and we're gonna pay you for that. And what we do on the other side is, um, we talk to brands in the US, UK, Germany, and say, look, your consumers hate plastic packaging. right? say like waste production is one of the biggest um, topics at the top of mind of, of consumers even higher than, than climate change, um, a recent Deloitte study showed. But at the same time, these brands can't really do something about their packaging f- footprint per se, right? because you need to, especially in the food and beverage space, you need plastic as a packaging material for, for hygiene reasons. Um, and there are no real alternatives on the market yet. So we say, look, you're part of the problem. You can be part of the solution by paying for um, waste management in other parts of the world um, to avoid plastic from getting into the oceans. And we understand that it's probably going to be a bit difficult for you to trust an organization that you don't know in India or Indonesia to actually do the work that you want them to do. And this is where Cleanup comes in and we build the technology that delivers evidence that the work is actually being done. Right, So every waste management company in India and Indonesia that is part of our network um, is using our um, software to track and trace the entire collection of the waste to really take images of waste on scales in the trucks and have all the weighing notes, all the disposal certificates, all the laboratory results that we can really prove both to consumers but also to our customers um, that if they purchase 10 tons of plastic waste collection, we will also do it. And if they collect the same amount of plastic that they put into the system, we uh, certify them as plastic neutral.
0: Thank you. Lots of questions. (laughs) Um, If I start with the business model, I think for me, the best startups in general are able to create unique business models that haven't been done before or within that particular industry. And and, uh, as I understand what you've effectively done is create a economy where you're giving value to a specific type of plastic, which um, didn't have value before. So it wasn't being collected or processed because you focus specifically on non-recycle. um plastic that is recyclable. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Was that the business model from day one or has that been like something that's been tested and evolved to get to where it is at the moment?
1: Um, The very first hypothesis was, is like, let's just build a marketplace for um recyclables, like for plastic scrap, basically, because There's massive demand in the market for that, right? But then when you look closer at the problem, this is something that is more or less soft. I would say it's not soft in the most perfect way, but India Indonesia have extremely high recycling rates for things that can be recycled just for the fact that nobody throws anything away that still has value. It's like if you have a household income, $550, 550 dollar. You're going to be very careful of what you throw away and what you what you continue to sell. So no material that has any market value is really littered or thrown away, and that's also very obvious in the numbers, in in the statistics. So only 20 percent of all plastic in the oceans are rigid plastics like water bottles, shampoo bottles, etc. 80 percent is flexible packaging or so-called multi-layer packaging where you have different layers of Plastic and aluminum, for example, like in a crisps pack or um, a tooth um, a toothpaste tube. Um, these are they have multiple layers, and as soon as you have more than one material type in a packaging, it's extremely or basically impossible to mechanically recycle that piece of packaging. So, if you can't recycle it, nobody's going to buy it from you because you can't do anything with it and that means nobody's collecting that material unless you incentivize them for that right and this is this is in the end what we do it's very similar to the market mechanics of a of a carbon credit just for plastic so it's plastic credits um but in the detail it's something it's something completely different
0: nice and in terms of how you respond or your partners responsibly process this non recyclable like plastics, what is the best way? Like, How can you responsibly process that kind of plastic when you can't recycle it?
1: Currently, it's a um, process called co-processing, which means that co-processing means it goes into a process that runs anyway, and um, you, you add it to the process. So we currently work together with the cement industry. Um, and basically, the, the plastic is used as fuel, it replaces coal. Um, as a primary fossil fuel, and because plastic has a higher heating value than coal, um, it reduces the carbon emissions of the cement industry itself. At the same time, you also need to to be open and honest and say, like, look, this is still a fossil-based fuel, right? There, there are carbon emissions. It's less than coal, but it's still not a perfect process. But this is not something that we as cleanup can can really solve because we are not the ones bringing this type of material into the environment, we just say, um, if we look at the waste management hierarchy, this is what's supposed to be done. It is better for the environment today than the status quo, because with open burning, you have a, the carbon emissions and um, a lot of soot, which is um, a lot more potent as a, um, as a greenhouse gas um, or black carbon and um this is why we decided to partner with the cement industry we are always looking for better alternatives so if anyone is listening who who has an idea of what else can be done with this material please reach out we are um looking at other technologies for example to um to press kind of a plywood substitute out of it um but there you also need very specific qualities so we can make sure that certain streams out of that non-recyclable waste go, go into other sources, but the majority of the waste currently still needs to be
0: used as an energy source. Makes makes absolutely sense, especially. Uh,
1: the, the market problem there is, by the way, that um, it costs to dispose that material. Yeah, So it's not just that you cannot sell it, but you even need to pay someone to accept that material for disposal. And that explains the entire dilemma, right? It's like, because... Why would I collect that material if I need to pay to dispose of it from
0: yeah. a capitalist point of view right? yeah 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 solving a major problem that has like two big issues with it um in terms of where you collect the plastic from in the kind of like the journey as a consumer of you know buying this product taking it home and when you when you see like the plastic campaigns the all the marketing it's it's always you know, pictures of stuff in the sea and the rivers um my something is that you focus mainly on kind of like household um waste, yes. and that's because it's the most that's the most efficient, like catch it early rather than before it gets into the environment. Is that right? Yeah,
1: it's it's the right thing from multiple perspectives to do, like from a socio economic, but also just from an economic and from an environmental perspective as well. Because you know, if you set an incentive into the market, what do you want to incentivize? If I put value on plastic that comes out of the ocean, or if I put more value on plastic that comes out of the ocean and plastic that comes out of land, where's the economic incentive to not let plastic enter the ocean in the first place? Right? Um, and this is why we say, okay, in an ideal world, plastic never enters the environment in the first place. And we want to incentivize this ideal world. So we want to catch plastic as early as possible before it can even do any harm to the environment. And this is why we try to go to the source as close as possible to avoid any sort of damage. Um, right? This is the kind of first step. Then from a, from a social perspective, what does it mean if plastic enters the, the environment? Um, what we have in mind are beach cleanups, right? This is beautiful. It's like you're in the sun, you're at the sea, you pick up waste, you feel good about yourself. But the ugly truth is the majority of that waste will end up on some unmanaged dump site that people put on fire under the open sky where you have a lot of toxic fumes, where the groundwater is um, completely contaminated with heavy metals, where you have horrible working conditions, you know, the, the kind of diseases that you get from there. I mean, Imagine your household waste, just hundreds of thousands of tons of that. And you need to walk through that to pick out specific material types that we try to incentivize collecting. Um, this is inhumane. We don't want people to collect waste from, from landfills whenever possible. Um, and you know, the, the most dignified job in the waste management sector then is really to go from door to door. The, these interactions are also extremely important from waste collector to household because You you can have an educational piece in there, right? It's like there's human connection. People are talking to each other and um, something is is happening. You can give feedback to the households, how they saw the waste, for example, all that. So it's not our goal to incentivize a world where people need to roam landfills to pick up specific materials and leave others behind. We say go to the household, get all the, the, the household waste, Make sure that it goes into a sorting facility where we can recover as much material as possible for recycling and whatever cannot be recycled goes into energy production. And the more households have access to that kind of network, the better it is for the economy, for the business model, for for everything. right? So you get better quality waste. There's a higher chance to be recycled, better working conditions. This is a system that can scale because it's not very difficult to collect waste from a household um so from our perspectives in my eyes this is the only way how we can get a handle on on plastic pollution while actively driving the circular economy
0: and to talk about the other side of the 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 business which is like the the paying customers for a second um you, you talked about earlier that you know uh Responsible businesses, but also just businesses. If if you're helping, if if you're creating part of the problem, then and, and you're making profits, and you can pay to be part of the solution. Um, have you found that that's been difficult to make traction with, getting customers to pay for this, or has it actually been quite easy, and and customers are actually just wanting a solution that you've been able to provide to them?
1: We we have 160 customers. Um, I wouldn't say it's easy. Um, because the concept is still so it requires a lot of education. Um. And what I see, what customers are really grateful for, in a way, is that they can now kind of openly talk about the issue because they know that the consumer worries about it. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's very, very unlikely that the waste of a German or of a UK-based company really ends up on the beach in India. It's like obviously we have issues with illegal waste exports, but in general, we have functioning waste management systems, right? So it's not that. The waste that we produce here will enter the will enter the ocean um but the consumer still has that association of okay, I have a plastic packaging, I associate that with ocean plastic pollution um and at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, this recent deloitte study shows that the biggest concern for um consumers at least in the u k is waste reduction but again, the companies especially if you're Having a consumer package good, right? It's like you need some sort of packaging around that. And plastic is, from many perspectives, just performing the best out of all the materials that you can look at, when it comes to barriers, when it comes to weight, when it comes to sturdiness, when it comes to price, also, right? This is not a secret. Um, but in many cases, you know, glass or paper are not a, not a viable alternative um to, to plastic. So these companies are dependent on using plastic and can't get rid of it, right? And this is something that they want to explain to their consumer as well, that they can make an informed decision and say, okay, I, I understand your, your trouble here. Um and I I appreciate that you're taking that topic seriously and that you're taking me as a consumer seriously as well by explaining to me what the world really looks like, right? And this is more what what the brands are looking for, then, then just offset and say, like, all right, I'm done. Um, <laughs> I, I fulfilled my responsibility um, and now I don't have to change anything. It's like the packaging departments and the sustainability departments are constantly scouting the market for, for solutions, but there are none,
0: or very few. So the, the value that CleanHub gives to the customers is the ability to show awareness that there is a problem that they want to be part of the solution. And I think what Clean Hub do really well, being a customer is that um, the the transparency and like commitment that you allow your customers to show. So the commitment of we're gonna remove, uh, yeah, we've signed up to remove this much plastic waste from the environment this year. And there's a, there's a real time kind of impact tracker of, of how much has been removed throughout the year. You can see which partners have been signed up. It makes it all feel much more real because you can see exactly how it's gonna work
1: and we also want to avoid greenwashing at at all costs right it's like um we don't want people to invest into something and then because this is my definition of greenwashing is like you make a claim that's not true um and in our case the 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 claim that we always want to protect at all costs is if you decide to remove 5000 kilogram we will remove 5000 kilogram and we want to give you the evidence that you have the confidence to also have that conversation with your consumer, right? It's like that you don't need to worry about. It's like, I'm telling everyone that I'm collecting 5,000 kilograms, and then the consumer comes around the corner and says like, nah, I don't believe you. Um, I think you're just doing this for marketing reasons or whatever. And there's no real impact behind that. And um, this is something that we want to take away completely.
0: If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Got it. And looking ahead, um, you know, For the next like, year or two, what are some of the big milestones for Clean hub? What are you focused on?
1: You know, the the world that we strive for, or the world that we're trying to build is actually a world where we do not need plastic credits to run a circular economy, where we do not need outside capital to pay for the service. Because I truly believe that humanity has the capacity to solve a lot of problems through technology. and. There is technology out there that can basically turn every single piece of plastic back into pyrolysis oil, for example, which can then be turned into new plastics. So you can close the carbon loop in the plastic market. But for that, you need a very stable quality of, of waste streams and of plastic waste streams because there's thousands of different types of plastic. But that means the entire market needs to be standardized in the way how they sort waste. and. Um, This is what we actually want to achieve with cleanup, right? It's like to completely standardize the way how waste is being collected and sorted and where it goes and have all the data um, to know where do we have what kind of waste, where does it make sense to build what kind of infrastructure to be in a position to process that waste and to really transform the linear economy into into a circular one. To get to that space or to to get to that stage, we need to be the... the, um, the platform in the market that attracts the most liquidity from the market that, that is being trusted by the most companies because only as much money we can get in, the more waste we can collect, the bigger the, the the scale of the entire network becomes and the faster we can make these decisions on where to put, what kind of technology to process that, right? Because a lot of the recycling technologies only really work at scale. So if you have... Um, I mean the the small machines start working at five thousand tons annual capacity of of very specific waste stream. And getting there around the world is gonna be um a challenge. So we are very focused on, on growth for the next one, two years to bring liquidity into the market and build out this operating system for waste management. Um continue to standardize the market, continue to standardize the, the quality of waste. Um because yeah, as I said in the very beginning, um the circular economy must be the goal and it can be self-sustaining if it's better organized.
0: Definitely. And um if you know uh, someone's listening, um, we're talking about a scalable you know, scalable solution on, on like a like global platform that you're building. If I'm just a consumer sat at home thinking I could be doing more, like what would your advice be to someone in terms of like daily habits or daily decisions that they could change that would have an impact on
1: quite frankly I um, everybody gives the advice to reduce and I can only repeat that Um the most sustainable thing is the, the thing that you didn't buy um, but you as a consumer really need to be aware of the fact that you vote with every um, purchase decision you make so if you purchase purchase in line with your own values and when it comes to very specific actions in the household like right if you already reduced whatever you can reduce it is really important to sort your waste um don't listen to to news articles basically that tell you that any or that anything anyway ends up in the same bin or in the same place or whatever this is only the case if the quality of the waste stream is bad you can help the system dramatically by really sticking to the way how waste is being supposed to be sorted, which is given to you by your municipality or or whoever Um, do it. It helps. It really helps to increase recycling rates. Because, you know, just to give you one example, um, uh, um, if you have recyclables that are contaminated with um, organic waste, the likelihood of these recyclables to be recycled is extremely slim. Because it is too contaminated. You can't turn that back into a high-quality product. Um, And this is why it's going to be sorted out. It's going to end up on a landfill. It's going to go into incineration. However, if you have a clean stream of recyclables, this will be recycled at a much, much higher likelihood.
0: Very good advice. Yeah, I get to chat to people that have been sole founders or a co-founder. Are you glad that you opted to co-found the business? Like, could you imagine being trying to do this as a, a sole founder? And then, like, what are the benefits of having co-founders?
1: I think having having people with a similar incentive structure like you um, that complement your your skill set is the biggest advantage. Of like, just from a very German kind of fact based point of view. Obviously, there's also an, an emotional component to that, um, because honestly, the the early days are just fun, I think, Um, working on a problem together, uh, figuring stuff out, and then doing that again and again along the journey. Um, This is why I I would not want to be a solo founder.
0: And uh, you kind of touched a little bit there about kind of the the, the emotional side of having co-founders. When you do have those tough moments, how do you personally get through them like do you have support mechanism which is purely the co-founders do you go to people outside of the business for help and support or do you just have like other things that you do to help you get through those tough times
1: i try to maintain a network of people who are a step ahead of me um with the companies like in later stages um and this is where i i go for more the, the business related things um and then for um, I'm going to get a puppy soon <laughs> so that's good yeah. emotional support um, but it's, it's good to know that my family stands behind me 100% um, so you know there are moments when when the journey is getting tough and knowing that you that you can call someone who does not care about how you perform as a leader or how, the, how your company performs um, is is really nice and um that have a different standard of of looking at you as a as a person um is is really crucial. So for professional topics is a strong network of mentors for um the more emotional topics a good network of friends in my case Florin as one of the co-founders this is one of my best friends so that, that also helps we know how we tick. Um, and um yeah, make sure to not neglect family too much. Yeah,
0: nice. Um, really good points. And on the business support one, that that's what I hear quite often. Actually, is like uh, good advice from founders is to have a network of people that are a funding round or two ahead of you, so you know what's coming, and you can speak to them about how to get to that next stage as well. So, lovely. Um, um, my final. It's, se- a very, it's a
1: very dense number. Or. It's a, it's a small number of people that I talk to. Because another thing that that I notice is the more people you talk to, the more kind of tips and advice you're gonna get, which can also be confusing at times. So I decided to pick a few that I trust. Um and maybe they're gonna be wrong sometimes, but it's more important how you can discuss topics if you do that on eye level or if it's just someone giving you blunt advice and says like this is how you should do it. Um because that's not really a learning curve. Yeah.
0: <laughs> nice. Um final section is going to be chatting a little bit about um just how you go about building and growing um an impact business. Like you you know Clean Hub is uh, a an impact business. Is it has the potential to have a, a positive impact on a global scale. Um yeah, how do you go about doing that in terms of getting the the culture, the values, the people right? Like, what are some of the things you've deliberately or or accidentally put in place to help you grow the right way?
1: Culture wise, is a certain humbleness and transparency or or openness. Um, for example, you know, we're not very secretive about what we do with the waste. Where if you look at other players in the market. They are a bit more secretive about what what happens to that because it's not the the beautiful social media story of I'm turning a plastic bottle into, I don't know, a bracelet or whatever that will become waste at some point anyway as well. Um, But we say what we do and we try to be as transparent as possible about these things because um, as soon as people think that you are... Being successful at least maybe that's just a German thing, but as soon as people have the feeling that you're using doing good as a value proposition in the market, you will be eyed extremely carefully, and everything you say is gonna be put on a on a scale. And there's a lot of people who do not believe that companies can try to focus on. Doing good for the environment and do good for the, for for business. Um, I think that's a that's one observation that that I had over the past months, and especially from from people that want sustainability, they are the most critical. Which is good because it holds you to account to um, to do good. Right, um, but just be aware that this comes up, and I think if one becomes too arrogant about it, um, about the positive things a company does the stronger you will face headwind from, from people within the market. Um, so we try to not be too smug about it and try to stay factual about what's going on. And uh, we are not an NGO, right? And, um, mm-hmm. This is not how we want to. I think that's that's one big thing culture-wise and realizing also as a team that the heavy lifting now our industry is still being done by the partners on the ground, right? It's, like it's being done by the people that are collecting the waste. We are an intermediary and we are enabling this market. Yes, so we have positive impact, but the, the real heavy lifting is, is being done by others. And I think as long as we keep remembering that, um, we'll be in a good position. Else, I think it's... It's good to be in the position where we're at um because it helps you in hiring it helps you to to find missionaries not mercenaries in the market um people are very dedicated to to the work that they do within the within the organization and um this is a, the company is only as as successful as the people that they hire right um so that is a good a good place to be in definitely.
0: And when it comes to like your general principles around hiring and what you look for from people, obviously I assume it's people that share those things, like the the openness, transparency, the level of humility, buying into the mission and, and what you're trying to achieve. Is there anything else across like the different skill sets you generally look out for from people?
1: Maybe that's going to switch at some point, but we have almost not a single junior on the team. And I think this is different to many startups that I see in the market where, where we try to be cut costs by hiring cheaper people or maybe less experienced people. And I'm not saying that inexperienced people are not good. Right? It's like I was fortunate enough to be put in a position where I had a lot of responsibility without having a lot of experience. But this is kind of our way to handle that, that execution risk in the company um, by focusing on, on experienced people. Um, what else do we, do we look for? We are a remote first company, generally um so people can work from home or from from the office in berlin we have one office in berlin the rest is really fully remote um and you know everything else would also be impossible because we have people in india we have people in indonesia we have people in berlin london paris czech republic um spain it's impossible and um we want to get the the best people that believe in our mission and that are humble about it <laughs> that's the that's the way how we look at it
0: and i always ask this question as a first-time founder or for like you know, first-time founding team how do you know when to hire and what skill sets to hire for because you know your background will be your background you, you couldn't possibly know every single skill set that goes within a company where do you go for for that advice knowledge on, on who to hire and when one really good advice that i got in there
1: is look at your budget um, see where you have big budget blocks. Put someone experienced on that, and they will know how to hire the team that they need to execute. So, yeah, delegate the work in the end, and that's what we did when we raised the seed round. We saw that we're going to spend quite a bit on product, that we're going to spend quite a bit on marketing. Um, so we got experienced people there that are heading these budgets, and you know they they know who to hire. So for me as a as a founder, it's more to build the right team of of people with experience around me and they're going to do the,
0: the heavy lifting again. In terms of CleanHub, what do you think you do well as a company to compete in the current hiring market? Because it's obviously super competitive at the moment. It's very difficult to attract people. Um, what do you feel that CleanHub do really well?
1: I think to some degree, it goes back to to what I mentioned earlier about transparency, because we also try to apply that in the hiring process. Funny enough, a lot of the the hires that we did was not by, by saying, like, look, in the next year, you're going to be the VP of this or, or this and that, but we say, like, look, this is where we want to head as a company and this is what we want to achieve. This is going to be your role for the next one, two years. What the next step will be, we can't tell you because this is going to be based on your performance. What I can tell you is if the company grows, there's going to be opportunity to to grow within the company, but I'm not going to sit here and make any promises that I can't keep. And it feels like people really appreciate that and to to really understand what's the situation that I'm going to get into and not to sugarcoat anything right? because startup might not be the most secure place to work. And I want people to know what, what they're getting into because else you're also going to get cultural misfits, right? If you hire someone on the promise that they will have massive responsibility in the next six months and they see that their career is moving nowhere, you're going to have a very disengaged workforce um and i think that is something that people in the interviews itself appreciate this this level of openness on of uh, no bullshit and despite a, a difficult market it gives them trust in the in the position where they move to and gives them a good understanding of what what we mean by transparency i think that's something that we did that we did good and then obviously you know Everybody loves the ocean. I know very, very few people that would say, I do not like the ocean. I do not like the mission that you're on. And it is very tangible what we do. We have a Slack channel where the entire documentation from on the ground goes in. And whenever you feel a bit <laughs> unmotivated or whatever, you can just go into that Slack channel and see the work that I'm doing has actual impact. Something is moving in the world. We're making progress. And it is a, yeah, it is a tangible mission, I'm solving a massive problem. There's a massive market behind it, right? It's like this. There, there's basically no waste management industry in many parts of the world, and we're building that industry. And <laughs> that there, there is obviously also multi billion dollar opportunity while doing something good for the planet. So I think we, we check a lot of boxes, um and that attracts talent. Absolutely,
0: and uh, yeah, that that first point especially resonates with me as a recruiter. I think it's it's too tempting too easy to oversell opportunities whether you're the recruiter or the hiring company and actually just being really realistic honest open from the outset creates a good impression but also it sets a tone for what it'd be like if you're to work there you know you're never going to be oversold or promised promotions that don't happen you know that you what you're signing up for and I think people really do appreciate that level of um, authenticity. In terms of how you've grown so far, I, I you know I think startups founders that always have the answer to this one or, or no, but you know in terms of how you've grown to date, like how how big is the team and, and what is the, the roughly the split been between how much you've been able to hire directly versus where you've had to work with partners and and you know pay fees for, for recruiters?
1: We're um, by now twenty people, and on on all engineering and product positions, despite the news. Product manager that's coming in we work with recruiters um, for our leadership positions I work with recruiters for our business positions um, came from my from my network um,
0: so roughly 50-50. and does that match up with the um, like your philosophy you've talked a lot about kind of you know hiring experienced people early um, in terms of using those recruiting partners do you find that's just the best way to access? top talent especially if you don't necessarily have a a network in those skill sets
1: yeah by the way there was one misinformation um the vladimir uh, front-end lead he also came from a previous company um it's good if you've been in the startup ecosystem you can just pick the best talent from your company Um, but yeah you know you you have a point there and if you are a small engineering team the the opportunity cost of having the Florin as the, the co-founder sitting on LinkedIn and uh, writing to, to candidates or um, outsourcing that are obviously massive. And I think there's always people that know how to do the, the job better than, than than anyone else in the market. And Florin is not a tech recruiter per se. Um, Florin is responsible to build good tech in the company, um, solve Big problems through, through technology, and just by that create an engineering culture that also attracts great talent in the long run. Right, and in the short run, while we <laughs> um, are still heads down and focused on an execution, um, there's just yeah, like for example, you <laughs> uh, people that are that are much better. Right, we hired two of our positions through you. Currently working on the third. Um, you're doing a good job, a much better job than we could. So. Um, it goes without question
0: thank you and i uh, mind something is that you're planning to raise series a this year um once that happens there'll be considerable growth this year and next year and i'm sure onwards how do you see the the kind of strategy around recruitment changing like i expect you'll start to look at maybe bringing someone in house at some point or
1: yeah definitely i think with the next round we'll definitely have someone who's taken care of um Of recruiting. And I think it's also the the stage when it really starts to make sense to invest in culture because, you know, to some point these things can uh, form organically, but a successful culture is is really, really important for um, the the long term process or progress of the the company. And, you know, it starts with very small things like. anniversaries, even though no one really has a benefit from from that. But I, I forgot all of them, I would say. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm very bad at these kind of details. Um, not that this is the only benchmark for, for a good culture. I still believe that a good culture, you work on something meaningful. You have the freedom to work on meaningful topics to you. And people are overall nice with each other. Um, and you progress in your career. Um, we're not, I do not see culture as a, as a perks fest where just because you work for a specific, specific company, you're gonna get all the great perks in the world. Um, I believe it's something much more intrinsic, um, but that needs to be maintained, that needs to be managed.
0: Yeah, yeah. and if you can enhance those little things, it, it will make a difference. But as you said, I think that the key thing, especially being a recruiter again myself, people are looking for purpose. They want to do work that means something and they can see the impact of that work. And if you can you can give them that in your work environment, then you're on to a winner. On that last point, wrapping up, I know you're hiring at the moment. I'm sure there'll be more hiring later this year. In terms of the best place for people that are listening that could be interested in working at CleanHub, um, I assume it's the careers page on the website. They can reach out to yourself, Joelle, on LinkedIn, any other good places where they can get in touch?
1: You you can email me, you can email Florin if you're in engineering, connect Florin on LinkedIn, um or connect me. I'm gonna connect you or go to the careers page. Um write us on the chat on our website, write us on our contact us form. Um if you if you want to use your engineering skills to um to clean the oceans or to keep the oceans clean, um more than happy to have a chat.
0: Amazing. Joel, thank you for chatting with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Craig. And talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al-Sahaymi and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.